Hey there, I'm Scott Mitchell, the editor of 7am. We're bringing you something special today, an episode from a brand new podcast that launched this week. It's called Read This, and it's hosted by the editor of The Monthly, Michael Williams. It's a show all about books, the people who write them, the stories behind them, and I've had a sneak peek at the list of early guests. They've got everyone, from Helen Garner to Anna Funder to Pulitzer Prize winner Colson Whitehead. We're about to play you the first episode after a quick chat with Michael. So, Michael, you're one of the biggest book nerds I know. Why did you decide to make this show? It actually is the true definition of a passion project. Schwartz Media knew that we wanted to do more podcasts, and one of the things we knew about the people who engage with our titles, whether it's the monthly or the Saturday paper or 7am, is they're big readers. They're kind of united by their love of good writing and their passion for the stuff that they read. So we wanted to be part of taking that solitary act of reading and build a community around it. And it's an incredible list of guests, but tell me a little bit about the stories we can expect to hear on the show. There's this really great line. Jeanette Winterson wrote this book about Virginia Woolf. And in the book, she says uh, that good criticism should start with the statement, I like this, rather than end with that statement. That it's not enough just to be an enthusiast for what we read, but to take that enthusiasm and start to dig into what the stories behind it might be, both for us as readers and for the people who wrote it. So the opportunity to hear writers talk about their influences, talk about what they read, talk about surprising, unexpected lateral things from their lives. That's, I think, where the really sweet stuff is. So you can listen to this podcast if you've read the books in question or know the writers, or you can tune in each week and our promise to you is you're going to discover someone that you're going to want to read next. Fantastic. And tell me a bit about the first episode, the one we're, we're about to hear. This is a show that's going to have various different kind of modes and approaches from episode to episode. Sometimes we'll be hearing from other readers on topics that they're enthusiastic about. Sometimes we'll be hearing from writers talking about their new releases. But the kind of third thread that you'll get when you listen to Read This every week is writers talking about a body of work, talking about influence, and talking about the works in progress. The things that we might not get to see for six months, 12 months, possibly even ever, but the project that has them kind of creatively stimulated at the moment. And so we couldn't be more excited than to deliver for our first episode, the extraordinary Helen Garner. So Helen generously invited us into her home. We got to sit and chat. We got to eat cake, ultimately. But before that, we got to talk about the release of her diaries. We got to talk about marriage. We got to talk about life and love and all of that stuff. But most importantly, we got to find out what Helen's writing next. I'm sure there are a lot of people who want a peek into Helen's mind and her house, and I can't wait to listen, Michael. Scott, there's a lot of nerds out there. Coming up after a short break, we'll hear the first episode of Read This. Hi, I'm Alison Crogan, arts editor for The Saturday Paper. Schwartz Media has launched a new weekly arts and culture newsletter, The Arts, featuring cultural criticism, profiles and provocations from the writers behind The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. The Arts will be delivered to your inbox every Tuesday. Sign up now at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. She's 
so I'm just checking this one. Michael, can you check that one so I can make sure that it's coming through on each? This one here, Peter Piper picked a peck of public-private partnerships. Great, okay. We're in Helen Garner's study. The bookshelves go to the ceilings and are crammed with books on psychology and piles of international editions of her work on the desk and notepads where Helen's been writing ideas for future projects. Behind the computer, she's pinned photos, cards, quotes from other writers. It feels almost too intimate to take it all in, and yet I can't help but snoop. From Schwartz Media, I'm Michael Williams, and this is the first episode of Read This, the show about the books we love and the stories behind them. In our earliest conversations about making this podcast, we made a list of all our dream guests, and right at the top of it was Helen Garner. So to be in her study is both thrilling and terrifying. I've adored Helen Garner's books for decades, but it's not just being a fan that makes me nervous. It's because one of Garner's great powers is the clarity with which she sees the world. The fearlessness of her gaze, the sharpness of her judgment. Imagine meeting Helen Garner and having her think you're a fool. Devastating. But that perception of Garner is missing the generosity, the curiosity, and the tenderness that runs through her work. And she's a generous host, too. She puts the cakes we've brought to the side for after, and we sit down to talk. About what she's working on, her views on marriage, and what runs through her head as she goes about every day. I've noticed lately, now that I'm old and officially old because I'm 80, that I talk to myself a lot. Uh, I I often think my daughter must hear me from next door thinking, oh, God, what's she raving about? (laughs) But but I So I try to think what it is that I'm doing when I'm talking to myself. And I seem to be working things out, but aloud. Or I'm reliving certain encounters I had with certain people and rewriting them you know, so that I actually said something or made a point. Or um, in the car when I'm driving along, I play out anger, basically. I invent, invent sounds a little bit too purposeful, into my mind come or float exchanges that I might be having with somebody who might be critical of me for the way I'm just, I've just driven. And, <laughs> and I think of all sorts of clever put-downs and shattering insults. (laughs) I do a fair bit of that. Is that imagined people you're arguing with or do you you retread old arguments as well? Both. But I I notice one thing I often say in these little scenes that come to mind is, how dare you? How (laughs) dare you take that tone with me? You know, I talk like that in a headmistressly sort of way and it's kind of really enjoyable. If you're not re-prosecuting old arguments or imagining pretend arguments. The other thing that you said you do when you talk to yourself is you're problem solving. You're kind of working away at things. Is that a typical part of how your brain works? No, that's much too organised for what happens to me in those moments. I Actually, one thing that happened to me yesterday interested me to think about. That is that I've actually been feeling quite um well, I think I'd have to say depressed lately since the whole COVID thing ended and um, I don't seem to have much sort of joie de vivre going on. I have hardly been listening to music 
and I used to listen to it all the time and it was really important to me. And it's just recently it's dawned on me that I hardly ever go and put on a CD anymore. I sort of can't be bothered fighting my way through the drawer and finding it and I haven't got Spotify and I don't want it. And I think, well, it's almost as if music has left my life. So I thought yesterday, okay, I'll uh, while I'm hoovering, I'll put my earplugs in and I'll listen to some music on my phone. I thought, well, what will I listen to? I thought, okay, I'll listen to J.S. Bach's Matthew Passion. So I put that on and I just randomly on YouTube found a most exquisite performance of it by the Netherlands Bach Society. I listened to half of Matthew Passion thinking I was just going to listen for 10 minutes and I found that I was completely absorbed by it and not needing to get up or blow my nose or make a note or turn a switch or do anything and I just sat quite still for about an hour and a half listening to the music and after that I had to turn it off because I had to go to my grandson's footy training but I felt so um, revived Mm. by listening to it and I was so grateful because I thought I'm, I'm not over and done with you know I'm not a dead fish lying on the pavement I can actually listen to music and it still means a lot to me and my mood completely revived and so then I went down to footy training which is always fabulous I love it and uh, and I thought oh I suppose I'll wake up in the morning feeling like a dead duck again but I woke up this morning thinking wow I'm going to jump out of bed and I'm going to do stuff and so then I sat down and actually started writing something which I haven't done quite a while and when I looked up several hours had passed that's a very rare thing is stillness something that comes easily to you, the stillness you describe no. of listening to the music? No, it doesn't. It doesn't come easily to me. Uh, I'm always nervy and twitchy and jumping about. Sorry to interrupt. I'm noticing that there's removalists next door and I'm wondering if you and Helen want to switch. Do you want us to swap seats? That's fine, so that if they're talking in the background, we don't have that. It's the guys delivering a fridge. Oh, no, I don't mind at all. They'll be gone in a minute. Oh, well, they Look, see that enormous fridge? Oh, fantastic. They don't know how to get it in. It's next door. Can you hear what they're saying? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just bang it. Just bang yeah. it through. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> to be in Helen Garner's house and know she's been writing something new is exhilarating. But we've had to stop because of tradies coming in and out of the house next door where her daughter and grandsons live. Living next door to her grandsons is a particular joy for Helen. She delights in things like watching them at footy training. In fact, it's this that she's been writing about. There's this whole world of boys on the cusp of being men that I find deeply fascinating and, and beautiful. You know, all, all the boys in my grandson's team, all they've all got broken voices. You know, they sound like men and they look not quite like men, but a lot of them have got, you know, big shoulders and they're big, strong boys. But when they come close to you while playing, you see the youth that's still there in their faces and uh, it's just that, that strange kind of magical period before they become totally men. Are they kind to one another when you watch them as a team? Like, is that a... Oh, kindness is not, perhaps not quite the word. I notice an enormous affection and love between them. There's a kind of um, joy they take in each other's mighty things that they do and how when somebody 
kicks a goal, they rush to him and envelop him in enormous hugs. I actually saw one footballer kiss another one on the brow recently. I was terribly pleased to see that. See, I've only raised a girl and I never knew much about I had a brother, but he was much, much younger than me and I didn't have all that much to do with him in childhood. But So now I've got these two grandsons and, and I've lived with them since they were born. And so I've watched them living and growing and I, I see how hard it is for boys, the, the, a different sort of hardship from girls. Seeing boys close up and sensing... I don't know if I would call it anguish in the case of these boys, where I'm sure they had certain moments of extreme unhappiness, as everybody does in the ordeal of childhood. Mm. But um, I'd love to know more about it. And I guess that's one reason why I was drawn to looking at the footy team, just to see. And, and you watch and you watch and you watch the training and you watch the matches and you can see which kids are, are suffering not just from the game, but in some kids take naturally to being in a team and it, it suits them and other kids don't know how to do it. And you can see them hovering on the outside, even if they're quite good players, they don't have that sort of bonhomie that perhaps they're hoping for. Mm. So I see I can take any amount of this sort of stuff. I, I actually love watching the training even more than watching the matches. What I love about that is that it seems... Your description of yourself as not being a very still person almost seems at odds with that creative process, which is finding something you're fascinated by and watching it and being mm. patient with it. Mm. And, you know, there, it sounds like there's a kind of conceptual stillness at sitting watching training. Yes. Well, that's a very interesting point too because I, uh, another time in my life when I've had to sit still for many, many hours is in a court and watching a trial. And sometimes sometimes I'm at training and there's nothing much happening and I'm just watching. I'm thinking, am I bored? I'm thinking, this is objectively boring, but I am not bored. And that's what I used to think in court when there were really long, boring uh, passages of court behaviour which were, where lawyers were just droning on. And even those, that's when I realised that this was work I was born to do because even when it was objectively boring, I was never bored. Why do you think you're not bored in those situations? Is it, not to be pat about it, but is it about the human beings? Like is it you're just endlessly fascinated in watching people? Yeah, I think it's that. But it's also when I first started going to courts, I felt so good when I was there and I couldn't wait to get there every morning. And I thought, why why does this make me feel so right? And I came up with an explanation. I thought it's because my brain or my intellect and my emotions were both working full bore, but they were working in concert with each other and not clashing against each other, which is how often we think about the intellect and the emotions that they're, they're kind of, I was going to say enemies, but um, opponents. Mm. But when they work smoothly together, that's when you feel this strange kind of joy, I suppose. Coming up after the break, Helen tells us about the intellectual and emotional task of revisiting her old diaries and what that's shown her about marriage. As a a. 7am listener... 
You're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. Welcome back. One of my friends, a fellow Helen Garner tragic, will often quote from a 2016 piece that describes Garner's defining characteristic as an awakeness, an aliveness to the thingness of things. I like this quote. For me, the deep pleasure of reading Garner lies in her precision. So sharp, not a word wasted. Going into this interview, we were debating our favourite Garner. For me, it's the children's bark. For our producer, Clara, monkey grip. Around the office, there were advocates for just about everything she's done. Fans of her court reporting and her collected essays. The spare room rated more than one mention. Her most recent books are three volumes of her diaries. They range from 1978 to 1998 and are nothing short of astonishing. The third volume, How to End a Story, is as detailed and real an account of the breakdown of a marriage as you could read. Reading the diaries, you feel like you really know Helen. They're shockingly intimate. No one is spared, least of all her. So it's not surprising that her fans, of all ages, connect with her and want her right to her. So the young, new generation of Helen Garner readers will be coming to you not just for kind of writing advice, but even life advice. Do you find that there's a lot of, you know, dear Helen, please advise me on marriage? No, no, I don't. <laughs> no, I don't. Oh, I get... I get people telling me their stories, but they don't seem to be asking for advice. It's more like, well, you know what, women tell their stories of rage and sadness and and, and they appreciate it when some other woman sort of shrieks over it with them. You know, people will say, oh, my God, you know, I read what happened to you on page so-and-so and and, uh, this reminded me of such-and-such and, and, you know, they'll give an incident from their own. This this is in, in emails from strangers and I I just hugely enjoy that. They don't, they're not asking for advice. Basically, I'm pitching to you an Agony Aunt column in the monthly <laughs> where it's, you know, Helen advises. I think we would get a huge uptake. <laughs> my advice would be get out now <laughs> is my one answer. That's one th- great thing about not being married anymore and being old, being, you know, when the world of romance is, is over and it's it's like that's all over. And you, you go into this wonderful world of... Um, of freedom. You can be friends with men in ways that, you know, when you're still out there in the sort of dating world or if you've still got, you know, hopes that you're going to meet some guy that you'd like to live with or or sleep with or something, you know, when all that's just plainly over, it's, it's wonderful. It's like having swum across a raging torrent <laughs> and you're standing on the opposite bank. And, you know, I, I look back and I see all these other women thrashing their way across <laughs> I don't want to say, keep swimming, it's great over here. (laughs) That's an unexpected part of your advice, Carl. It's just (laughs) quick, get to the other side. (laughs) I mean, the amazing achievement that is the three volumes of the diaries and the absolute privilege to read it as a reader, but for you unearthing them, revisiting them, editing them, quite literally immersing yourself in your own past. Were you surprised by finding what younger Helen, where she was, what she needed to do, her understanding of herself? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I, I f- felt going through those old diaries, I was quite shocked sometimes by what a wimp I was and what what I put up with, points at which I didn't spit the dummy or say, this isn't how I want to live, you know, I don't want to live like this, why am I still here? Lunig used to draw these cartoons of angels flying in the sky and they had these little kind of fluttering nighties on and, and little wings on their backs and, and they'd be looking down at all the human beings on the earth kind of tearing each other apart and the angels would have their hands up to their faces like this with, and their faces would be distorted with horror as they looked down on what people were doing. And I, when I was doing the diaries, I thought that's what it was like to do the diaries. I couldn't change anything that was there. All I could do was just look down in horror with my nighty flapping in the breeze. <laughs> it was really awful. Actually, talking about with you now, I'm thinking maybe that's one reason of, of being kind of um, depressed and low in spirits because it takes a lot of getting over, mm. dragging yourself through that sort of stuff. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's ridiculous that I hadn't thought of it. It's an extraordinary thing to go through loss, disappointment, all of that stuff to unearth it. I mean, it is. Mm. In public. In public, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What a strange thing. Uh, forget therapy. Uh, unearthing your old diaries and sharing them with the world yeah. seems seems kind of excoriating. Well, it sort of was, and yet I, I've been amazed to find how many people have got in touch with me about them. I mean, strangers. And how many women have said to me, this could be my marriage? And I've found that really shocking. Mm. It's made me realise again that marriage is terribly, terribly difficult. Mm. And it's not really set up for the flourishing of women. Mm. With the release of the diaries and with now your backlist being picked up overseas in a way that it hasn't necessarily been published before, something that I take great pleasure from is finding people who are discovering Helen Garner at this point and feel like, you know, have you heard of Helen Garner? She's fantastic. (laughs) I had a colleague uh, at an old job who my first day and I went in and above her desk in her office were photos and like pictures of you from magazines and things. It was like Che Guevara, but it was you. And she was maybe 22, 23 and was just an obsessive fan. Is it strange Having a different relationship oh, with your readers. that's fantastic. Um, thank you for telling me that. That's really wonderful. I, um, yeah, well, I don't know how to even think about that. I'm just terribly happy about it because, you know, you write books and, you, and the years pass and you think, well, I wrote that book 35 years ago, 40 years ago, but it's still in print. I mean, this is amazing mm. to me. It's amazing to me that Monkey Group is still in print. I don't know what I expected. I, I never had any kind of thought-out ambition Young people now, I know, have a much clearer idea of, you know, they would use an expression like my career, which I, I never would have. But I think that maybe my work falls, it's, it's sort of in, it's in a territory that's between older things and then there's all these newer things, but I'm just still sitting there. I don't know what that means, but I'm pretty pleased about it. From my perspective, I think it means that there's such integrity to the work. There's no looking over your shoulder on the page, it seems like. It's all there. Mm. And yet the thing that struck me reading the diaries was how omnipresent self-doubt and anxiety was through all mm. of that. See, see, the thing that happens is just say just say the book like the children's bark. 
which I think is like technically the best thing I've ever written. People talk about it, you know, respectfully. And then if I go back and look at it and open it up, I think, gosh, it is actually really good. And how did I do it? I don't remember how I did it. And I think I must have been in a, a almost like a different person back then. I must have been going through a period of where I was all sort of calm and organised and my thoughts were working. And, and then one day when subsequent to that I was trying to write another book and groaning and tearing out my hair over it and I, I sort of flung myself back on the couch in my workroom next to the bookshelf and I saw this little notebook sticking out and I pulled it out and what's this and I looked and it was a little diary that I'd been keeping around the time I was writing the children's bark and and it showed me that the children's bark didn't just flow out fully formed from the head of Zeus you know it was it was awful. I was going, oh, God, why did I ever start this? And I've got all these fucking characters and I don't know what, how to make them do things and what what on earth. I had no idea what I was doing. That's what I'm getting at. And, and that surprises me. Thinking about your anxieties about writing now and, you know, what if I've lost it or what if it's not the – reading your diaries, you seem to have those exact same anxieties that – doesn't seem to be about being 80. It seems mm. to have been as present when you were 40 yeah. as it is now. Yes. But doesn't everyone feel that sort of self-doubt? Yes, but I don't think everyone creates a body of work that are <laughs> masterpieces. I mean, it, it at some point it might be okay to be, I'm Helen fucking Garner, it's okay, I don't feel self-doubt anymore. Yeah. No, I don't think I'll ever feel like that. The time when I feel the most competent probably is if somebody says, uh, ask me to read something that they've written and I can see what is wrong with it and I can see how I could fix it. You see, I think when in doubt, cut it out. That's my rule. And sometimes it really hurts to cut something out because it's a darling and you have to murder it. But um, people should murder them more. That's all I'm saying. People don't want to slaughter their own work. They don't. You know, they drag it out of their guts with pain and suffering. But that doesn't mean it's any good just because you dragged it out of your guts. No, sometimes the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, I'm interested, I'm interested in this stuff. I mean, see, because I really like sentences. I just love them. And I love the way you build them. And I'm sort of really young, kind of in love with grammar and syntax. It's really important to me. And when people say it's not important, I get completely frantic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a wonderful passage in that third volume of your diaries where you imagine a future for yourself, where young Helen imagines a future for herself and imagines living closer to your daughter, uh, yeah. potentially eventual grandchildren. And that You know, you're imagining what it would be to be a grandmother. You're thinking about going to gigs and catching up with friends and having a drink and walking the streets. And one of the beautiful, joyous things about reading that in the book was thinking it's more or less a pretty accurate description. Yeah, of, it came true. Yeah. But, you know, the, the, the other thing about that fantasy when I had it was that that was when I was in uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy and I had this lovely fantasy about, you know, one day I'm going to be out of this awful mess I'm in and, and I'm going to have this wonderful life and I'm going to have the iron set up permanently and... And uh, anyway, so I go to shrink the next day and I say, oh, I was just thinking yesterday about, you know, one day I'll blah, blah, blah. And I explained this fantasy to her and she said coolly, yes, well, it is just a fantasy, of course. That's another fantasy of escape. 
And I thought, oh, like she threw this huge bucket of cold water over me, which I needed because having a fantasy of your life being better is not part of getting yourself out of the mess that you're in. You don't think it gives you something to motivate you to get out of the mess? Maybe, but no, I mean, her point was, her point was always to me uh, that you have to feel this. You've got to feel what you're going through. And I found that terribly bracing and useful. Oh, I'm suddenly thinking, we read the book um, Gilgamesh in our reading group a couple of years ago. And there's a scene in Gilgamesh where he's underground. He's in some frightful dark chasm or cave. And he's thrashing his way along and he's got no idea which way is up or whether there's a hole out of which he can drag himself and he just has to keep going and keep going and keep going and it's excruciating but eventually he's, he glimpses this light a tiny speck of light and he thrashes his way towards it and he finds that there's an opening and he comes out into the air and then the line of the poem says and then Gilgamesh saw the sea and it was so wonderful but I suppose I mean, Gilgamesh wasn't down there thinking, oh, geez, I wish I could see the sea. Mm. I mean, he, well, one day I'm going to see the sea. He was just fighting his way through the blackness. And I sometimes think that's maybe what she was telling me I had to do, had to, to stay me. right in it, you know, and not... In the middle of the fight. Yeah. Hey, let's go and eat the cakes. <laughs> yeah. We'll just leave all this here. I mean... Before we go, I wanted to tell you what I've been reading this week. Another Helen, whose name will be familiar to readers of The Monthly, is the excellent Helen Elliott. She's a book reviewer and longtime cultural critic, and now has written her first book. It's a memoir in the form of 11 letters to influential people from across her life. Teachers, neighbours, relatives, loved ones. It is truly original, and it's beautifully done. Oh, and it's called 11 Letters to You. I can't recommend it more. And I've also just started reading the new Brandon Taylor novel. It's called The Late Americans, and it's about three dancers navigating their relationships and careers. I'm loving it so far. If you're reading it too, I'd love to know what you think. That's it for our first episode of Read This. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you could help us get the word out. Please rate, review, share it with the readers in your life. It'll really help a lot. We'll be back every Thursday morning with new conversations with our favourite readers and writers. And next Thursday is a cracker. We're speaking with Anna Funder about her wonderful new book, Wifedom, Mrs Orwell's Invisible Life. We also talk about her unquenchable desire to take on the big issues through her writing. I've been wanting to look really closely at what it is to be human. And to do that, I've looked at humans in various kinds of extremists, first under, you know, Stalinism and then the Nazis and now patriarchy, as my husband says. He says to me, yeah, first you take on the Stasi and the Nazis and now patriarchy. He said, are you done? I'm like, no, I don't know. Maybe. don't know. I'll Late be d- capitalism next. Bring well, it down. I'll be done when, when it's over, uh, you know. When there's no more tyranny. When it's fixed. Read This is produced by Clara Ames and edited by Sarah McVeigh. Mixing and original compositions by Zoltan Fetcher. And you can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. 
Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.